people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Henrik and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVerse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at SpoilerCountry at gmail.com. Godzilla and Kong. Yeah, it happened. It did. Oh, you guys stay tuned. Within the next few weeks, we will have an in-depth conversation with one of my favorite writers and Mr. Horsley here, and we're going to talk Godzilla versus Kong. But in the meantime, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Ken Cregan. That right there is Mr. Horsley. I don't know where the hell that came from. I don't know either, man. But today on the show, it's James Patrick, isn't it? It is, man. He wrote, speaking of kaijus, he wrote Kaiju Score from Aftershock. Yeah. Aftershock Comics got some great stuff. You know, you heard us talk about him before. Uh, Kaiju Score is a new book to come out. And uh, he comes on, James comes on, sits down and talks with Jeff. And, um, you know, it's funny, a little like side personal story. His name's yeah. James Patrick. My son's name is Cody James Patrick. So I see yeah. that name, I just think I'm a kid. But it's just not really this at all. But this is a fun one. It is It is a fun one. So why don't, why don't we just shut the hell up and get into it? That sounds good, man. All right. Well, let's listen to James Patrick in his own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic James Patrick. How are you doing, sir? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Is Where, where, where are you um, out of? I, I currently live in West Virginia. How's that going? Oh, it's not bad. It's not my it's not my my first place of it wouldn't be my pick to live, but my ex-wife and I, we moved down here a long time ago and I have shared custody shared custody of my kids. And so, you know, you just make the best of it. And I'm from Ohio originally, northeastern Ohio. So it's just it's a different it's a different culture in I, West Virginia. I, I would guess. I mean, I, I know there's obviously probably some stereotypes on West Virginia. Is it closer to Virginia as, as far as, or is it more like South kind of in how it, it culturally? It's where I live. You know, it's a it's one of the larger cities in West Virginia, and it's it's on the border of Ohio. So it's it's not it's it's closer to Ohio than it is, say, you know too rural but you know again i'm from i'm from the cleveland akron youngstown area and you know it's pretty it's just a different speed up there so growing up what what were you reading comic books back in the day yes yeah i I, you know comic books saved me (laughs) you know i was the typical typical, uh, not very social at school not very popular you know in grade school and stuff like that and one day i just you know i'd had comics like when I was really small, I had comics and I would cut out, I was always creative. So I would like go in and I would, I would look at star Wars comics and I would cut out, let's say like pictures of Han Solo and pictures of Luke. 
And then I would arrange them. And then that was like my first exposure to comics was kind of being creative with collages like that. And then as I got older, you know, I, I kind of read my first comic as in I read it, read it. Yeah. And like, it was over. Like I, it began a love affair of my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, I will say as a com as a comic book collector, that, it broke my heart just a little bit when you said you cut pictures out of the comic book, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. A little, a little well, part of me it, died inside. <laughs> I understand. I understand. <laughs> so, what, were there any issues that, looking back, you were like, God, I wish I had not uh, cut holes out of it? Not really. I mean, there was nothing. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm not old enough to have cut uh, out anything like an Amazing Fantasy 15. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> Or, or even the Star Wars one, for that matter. But they were like later issues of Star Wars. And I was really, you know, I was really young. And I just took some scissors. I just wanted to create. You know, I didn't. Yeah. You know, the same way I played with my action figures. I'd, I'd open these books and there were these awesome, there's this awesome art and creativity. And I just wanted to be a part of it. So, you know, I, I would just cut out the different characters and arrange them in different situations and stuff. But I guess so that was the first. That was like my first foray into writing in some sense i guess you could say well i mean it, it, the, the making a collage is definitely a creative endeavor i mean it, it's cool that you start making the comics as collages and now you professionally make comic books the way you want to yeah exactly do you remember what got you into comic books like were you just introduced to them was it as you said because of star wars was it the movies that brought you well, into them i was i was pretty young but the G.I. Joe cartoons, they, they, they would have these commercials for the comics. Yeah. And it just was larger than life than anything I had seen. Like, it just popped. Like, they would do, you know, they would do the show, and the show was the show was great at the time. And I watched it, and it was just all colorful and people battling and Astro and Cobra Commander and all that stuff. And and then during, they would do these, they would do these, like, you know these commercials for the comics and they would always you can find them on youtube and then they would freeze frame them at the end and it would be the cover of the comic it just it was so awesome to me at my age that i was like i have one of these so i went to the next time i was at the newsstand and or i, I, I might have told my, my my parents take me to the newsstand and <laughs> i picked up you know i picked up a copy of gi joe and i just from there on i i, I was hooked now that would be Larry Hama, correct? Yeah, yeah, that guy's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, he is. Still going at it too. Yeah, I, I, the guy's been. I guess he's been in the industry now for what forty years now. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah he's he's definitely been. And even like his he did he did the Wolverine run, yep, which yep. I enjoyed at some point, and you know GI Joe, and you know guys yeah. guys fantastic. Yeah, I was lucky enough to get an autograph of his. I, I'm trying to remember where what convention it was, um, where it was, but I was able to get two issues of Wolverine signed by him. And it is a pretty really big deal. Yeah, I've never met him, but but I'm sure I, I, all the stories I've heard is he's just an excellent, nice guy. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I think the cool thing I think you hit on something that's kind of interesting when you talk about the visuals of the like GI Joe visuals of like Cobra Commander and Destro and whatnot. Those visuals do capture your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. They're very, you know, they're, you know, GI Joe came off of shield at the time. They'd use some stuff early, early, early in the creation of GI Joe. I think it was, it was related to shield in some way. They developed it out of that. 
And just the jet packs and the colors of the, the Joes and the laser guns and all that stuff. And it was just, it was just larger than life to me. Now, were you collecting up through Serpentor? And I can't remember, who's the guy with the tail? The, the long leg lizard, uh, uh, snake tail. I can't remember what his name was. Were you collecting all the way through that? I think that was Serpentor, wasn't it? Well, there was Serpent- Serpentor. And then there was an episode where the, I remember the character Nemesis, the Royal Guard. And then there was that guy with the glass. But it, and he had like half his body. The rest of his body was like the tail. It was a different character, wasn't it? I think that's just when me, I was getting out. Like I moved on to other stuff. I. D.I. Joe had a, had, a, had, a, had a life to me that at some point I got out of and got into other things really quickly. Even, even in the comics, I, had, I was enjoying it for a long time. And then at some point, it got a little ridiculous to me. And I think <laughs> it's when I started getting into like Daredevil and just different types of comics. I remember the character you were talking about, but I, like that was towards the later, you know, towards the end of it, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how long I held on to. I mean... I, I I was born in 1980, so like GI Joe was near the formidable years of my early childhood. But I can't yeah. remember how long I stayed with it before I moved over to superheroes. I think, I think it was Bat, the Batman movie. I think is when I moved away from GI Joe into superheroes, the original Batman. Yeah, movie. I, and I was the same way. I mean, once I had hit Daredevil and X Men, like there was kind of no turning back for me. GI Joe had gone from like it was it was a little more balanced in military. Yeah, and then they had they just had to sell crazier and crazier toys at some point. Yes, so there was a stretch there where you know I just fell out of it. Balance was gone. I don't remember the character you're talking. I remember the character you're talking about, but I don't remember his name. I remember seeing him. Yeah. So when 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 you went into X Men, I assume that was the Jim Lee Chris Claremont run. Yeah, that was that would have been right around there. I remember reading them, and like when that combo came out, I remember in junior high, I wasn't into necessarily buying comics that much I was buying baseball cards at the time, but I just yeah. remember standing around a desk at, in school and me and my friends just staring in awe of that comic book, how brilliant it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, I, I got in before that and that was when things kind of peaked, so to speak. Mm. And I was definitely reading then I had, yeah, I remember they had the, they had the posters and I had all the posters on my wall, though. the connected posters. There were like five of them or something. I, it was basically the, it was the covers, you know, how the covers connected. And then I had those on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing how I think more back in the day than now, there was more common experience among comic book fans. I, I think because there's so many, such a wider range of comic books, most people, a lot of people don't share the, the same favorite comic book. But back in the day, I felt like most of people, if you're in comic books, you like these certain comic books. You had like, there's a more of a odds of you knowing a group that like the same. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I have this theory too that, that I think people fall in love with the craft. I, I think they fall in love with the pulp of it and, and superheroes and everything. And I, a lot of people, I think it wouldn't matter if they picked up X-Men or it wouldn't have mattered if they picked up Spider-Man or it wouldn't matter if they picked up Batman at the time. Whatever they picked up, they picked up. I think I think it has a lot, like they just fall in love with the pulp, the, the generalness, the craft of it, how it all goes together. There's just something about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. There, it, it does become a, a little bit of an addiction. It does become a part of you, I think. Once you started buying with Daredevil and X-Men, was there a point where you stopped or where you have been consistently buying since then? Well, I think I think we all go through phases. You know, in the teenage phase, you start, you sort of take a break from stuff like that. And I think I did that a little. I, like, it was always a part of my life, but it definitely dipped for a while. And then, you know, a lot through the problem with the 90s, 
there was a lot of the 90s had a lot of bad material okay mm. the exception of books like sandman and preacher and the ones everyone knows there was a period of the 90s where the quality of the books just just weren't on the whole great and i took a break from comics at some point in the 90s and then i came you know i came back hard with Anderson Brubaker in the early 2000s. So, so I read that you attended Youngstown University, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So why did you select that school? It was close to where I lived. It was, it wasn't, it was also easy to get into. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was close to where I lived. It was easy to get into. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I ended up, you know, I ended up on the Youngstown State. And college was important because of the experience, if not for the education. Yeah. What I mean is you get out of that hometown you're in and you meet new people, you have new life experiences. And I think that was very important at that time for me. So. That, that sounds a lot like why I went to the University of Rhode Island. I, I live in Rhode Island. It was close. Mm-hmm. It was close to home. I, I was going to go to potentially there's some chance I was going to go to the school in Texas, but it was University of Rhode Island was close to home. And it was cheap. <laughs> this is kind of how it yeah, happened. Right. And I was a shitty student in high school. And I think my yeah, so was I. It wasn't <laughs> that I wasn't smart. I just didn't do anything. Like I just didn't exactly. Do, I just didn't do anything. So when I went to college, like I just took whatever. You know, it was only an hour from where I lived, but it was a lifetime away in some yep. ways. And because I stayed on campus, so it was just a different world. It was an absolutely different world. I, and at least I agree with you. I, I would say I wasn't, I was, I was never stupid. I was smart enough to know what I need to do to pass and didn't care to do beyond that for the most part. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't care to do even that sometimes. To be honest with you. <laughs> well, but like I said, though, I, I think very similar. I remember probably my high school is probably life was sort of like yours. I did not make friends easy. I did not have many and I did not enjoy my high school career whatsoever. And I think that does affect you academically as well to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And you did. You know, like I said, related to what I said about college was, and then I thrived at college, not not grade-wise, but in terms of you find your own groups, you take the classes you want to take for the most part, and it just, it was, you know, it's a good, it was a good experience and that I wanted to be there, and it really did shape me. Not, you know, like not, my first philosophy class, I was just blown away, but, you know, <laughs> it was, I was just like, oh, okay, you know, these are interesting things. So now, now you said when you attended college, a uh, Youngstown, you didn't have a necessarily a goal. Did you eventually find a focus? No, I, I mean, I, yeah, it was writing and it was like, I was like three years into psychology. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, so, you know, I, I just was always creative. And then I started taking some journalism classes because I was enjoying writing so much when I, when I, even even taking psychology and then you know i just i just enjoy here's the thing though even in college if i had a paper due i could like not read a book on the paper and just absorb what i in class or absorb mm-hmm. what i knew i could write a paper that got an a yeah and i was like and i was and i could do it in one night and i'm and, and i started to learn that way but boy, i could really put some thoughts together i could really organize some thoughts i could really Yes, my way through stuff. I was creative on those papers. I, I you know, if we had to do a paper, I'd, I'd, I'd get an A, regardless of how much research I did on the paper. <laughs> so I started taking journalism classes because you could, like, I could just tell that I, I had a knack for something in that field. Yeah. 
I took some journalism classes and, and my professors were really impressed. And I kind of started my journey. It kind of pushed me. Having someone you tell you, hey, man, you're, you're pretty good at this. You should consider doing this for a living. They were speaking about journalism, of course, but, you know, I wanted to write superheroes. So, well, I, I I find it interesting that as a writer, you gravitated to not only about writing, but also psychology. It seems like there's tend to be those two things tend to be intertwined on some level. They are. I mean, they, they, you, know, you I can't put it any better than you did, because when you learn how people function like that, <laughs> that inherently helps you with your writing. They're so interconnected. And it's funny, I always say, well, I tend to write single protagonist stories when I choose to, Yeah. when I can choose what I'm writing. I'm like, well, if I had, if I had taken sociology instead of psychology, maybe I would have, I would, I would have chosen, <laughs> that would have bled into my work and I would have done, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger narratives with, with more protagonists or something. But yeah, it just, it all bleeds together. And it gave me like in such valuable tools into writing, you know, you know, like, okay, so you have you know, Tolkien, he went to war and you can see all of that in his books. You know, it's just whatever your experience is, you, you pull that in. So. so when so when you're writing and when you really are as, as someone, I mean, I, I do a little bit of writing on my own, obviously not the kind of writing as, as popular as, as you have become, but the little writing I have done, you know, when you're when you really have a grasp of what you're doing, you you have a sense of your characters when you have a sense of your characters. Are you hearing them individually in your head? Yeah, I would say so. It's not always, it's not always quick. It takes a little while for me to get some traction on my characters, meaning I'm not always thinking in terms of just character. So it just depends where I start the story. If I start the story with a character and I say, Oh, I'm writing the story because of this character. And then I'm more likely to anchor to that and get that, a little quicker but at the same time i've noticed it takes me about issue three of something to really really uh, at least with my own characters to really get to know them what i've learned i've learned little tricks to get there quicker because i know that you know i know that going in mm. but yeah I, I would say about issue three i start to write things really fast and all the characters are very distinct for me now that that's that's me talking about my own stuff and work for hire I'm sorry, my own stuff on creator own. Typically on work for hire, like I have I've been reading Batman for so long that when I when I wrote Batman, like I knew who I knew who he was. In my mm. head, I knew how he talked. I knew you know, I, I had this 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 sense of this 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 character. It's kind of indescribable that it exists in your head as a character and you can write him. So yeah, it, I'm speaking mostly for work for hire. It takes me about three issues to really get to know them in some ways. That's funny that we mentioned Batman in that way because Batman really has been around for so long and there's so much stories written about him. He doesn't feel like a fictional character. You know what I'm saying? He feels like you're you're no. writing about the history of Batman, you know, like the actual historical guy, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. It, it feels like you know him. I mean, you know, you, you just... You, you just get inside his head so easily. I just, same thing. Like I could write Daredevil. I could write Batman. And I'm so familiar with them. Like I can take it over like instantly and just, I just feel like they're a friend of mine. And I just feel like I, I just, they're, they're, you know, some part of me is them and some, some of them is me or whatever. I, I don't know. <laughs> but it just comes easier when, you, when you've been with a character that long. Now, now you, now you have had the fortune of writing for Batman and also Green Arrow. 
have you had the opportunity for Daredevil yet? No, I've done no Marvel work, so it'd be nice someday if I did. I'd like to, I'd like to, to tap into that. So, no Daredevil, but you know, I bring up Daredevil. Daredevil is my favorite character. So I always say, okay, Star Wars made me a nerd. Daredevil made me a writer. Those Frank Miller issues, when when I went back and found those, and I just was like, wow, you know, this this stuff here visceral nature of that i'd never read anything like that and i would say that that had the most impact on me daredevil to me is by far my favorite character and i also think that daredevil is the most well-written marvel character in the history of marvel characters i'm not saying he's the best character i'm just saying that if you add up all the all the stories that are great daredevil writers i think he has the i think he's pound for pound he has the best stories I, I I wonder. Do you think some of that lends to being the idea of being a street level hero? Like, yes. Do I think it lends to how definitive that genre is different than superhero, and I, it it melds together. At the same time, when you write Captain America, you write a superhero mm-hmm. most of the time. Uh, you lean on the superhero when you write Superman. You lean on superhero when most people write Wonder Woman. You lean on superhero. When, when people write Daredevil, they lean on crime. And I think that's why you get fascinating stories when, when you, I think you always get a more fascinating story when you when you dip out of superhero genre into some subgenre or some other genre. But I think Daredevil, Daredevil's DNA with Miller became that so much that people went there quicker. And for whatever reason, he seems to, Daredevil seems to have the same impact on others as me. <laughs> and they write him... You know, they go when they write Daredevil, boy, <laughs> they, they really go at it. So, so when writing characters like Superman, like I imagine, like Thor, things of that nature, do you think the writers are missing a key component that would make them as maybe as accessible as Daredevil and maybe probably Batman and Green Arrow? No, I all of this is, is all of this, I would say, I'm saying because I just prefer crime, I just prefer those stories. So somebody else is going to find that great thing about Thor that I find about Daredevil. Thor is just going to talk to and connect to somebody else better than than it connects to me. So I don't think that anything's missing from Thor or anything's missing from Captain America and stuff like that. I just find it more interesting that when Daredevil is written well. And I do think, you know, I would say that that hard lean on crime and of other genres makes it easier to write a better Daredevil. Makes it it makes it fresher, easier. It mixes it easier. That's why I think when somebody writes, you know, was it uh, like Azarello wrote Wonder Woman, and he used a lot of oh, I'm blanking out. It was the Greek mythology. Yeah, you know, he he added that element to it thickly, and I think that's why that run is so acclaimed. Like you mix in these things, and and I, I think whenever you add in a, a, a subgenre or, or you mix genres i just think it has the potential to be stronger if you do it right so and i and i think when they added when they kind of leaned into into daredevil's catholicism i think that was a very interesting way to add let's say complexity and depth to a character yeah. that could you know years earlier never quite saw that level absolutely the catholicism you know it's and it's so gothic it, it, it's it's amazing how it all blends together I, I grew up Catholic, which ended at some point. But I, so I also, that's why I'm, I'm drawn to that. Even Constantine, 
the, the Catholic mythology in it that draws me to Constantine. So yeah, I, I, I Hellblazer has had some great um, stories. I, I must admit, I, I've not enjoyed Constantine as much as since when he was Hellblazer. That that first right. those three hundred issues of Hellblazer are some terrific comic books in there and some fantastic writers. Well, I always say that I always say that Daredevil is pound for pound the best written comic of Marvel, and Constantine is probably well Hellblazer Constantine is probably pound for pound best written DC character. He definitely is the most unique. I, I do like the fact that you do have a character who is so clearly human. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like th- he, he does not... It, th- most DC characters do have a certain level of perfection. Even the ones they're making flawed have a certain level of perfection and straight heroism. Constantine is so complex with his morality that it makes him feel more real, I think. Yes, absolutely. And like people, you hear people talk about him, those things come up and they, they don't even come up like you, 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 you've nailed it from an outside perspective. Yeah. When you hear people talk about it, they bring up instances that sort of are examples to exactly what you say. Like they don't know that but they, they, they bring up this example, that hits that on the head. Oh, he did this. And, and it goes into exactly what you're talking about. There's something to be said for more, more ambiguous. I mean, most people right. are going to be morally ambiguous, just like he is. Right. Right. Uh, well, you know, it's, in characters like Rorschach, you look at that, and, and he's not a character you want to be, and he's not a character you want to admire. But I still admire the way he's written complexly. Yes. Word. Uh, <laughs> the contradictory nature of his existence with, with what he has to do in that story and how it all makes sense despite that. And I, I think when that works, I don't think there's anything better. Yeah, and, and like I said, one of the characters that you you wrote, Green Arrow, is another character who, when done well, there's a, there's also multiple layers to his character. I think with Neil Adams and Daniel Neal, when they made him the voice of like the left, as it were, I think that's when he works when he worked well. And I think some story like I think Jeff Lemire, I think did a great run on Green Arrow. If I'm remembering correctly, that he was the writer. I'm pretty sure he was the writer. I mean, yes. wrong on that one. Yeah, Lemire. When you approach Green Arrow, what was your approach with him? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. When I approached Green Arrow, I, I wasn't ready for Green Arrow. I didn't know enough about Green Arrow. And I tried to I tried to cram Green Arrow, and I thought I could do it. Uh, I had a little too much work on my plate at the time. And what ended up happening was I felt like I had a good story. And then DC nixed the story, and I had to rewrite that pretty quickly. And I don't feel like I was was versed enough in Green Arrow to rewrite him as quickly as I could have. It was actually one of my regrets, you know, in that I just did not, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I swung and I missed it. That. That's not a run that I felt I did my best work on. I, I, I've done, you know, I've done an issue of Batman that, that I love, that, that I love how it turned out. And I've done Harley and I love how it turned out. I've done, cre- I've done creator owned. But I love how it turned out. And Green Arrow is not one of the things that turned out well for me, at least when it came to my criteria. So did, they, did DC ever say why they nixed that the first effort? Yeah, they were going into New 52. And it, it did exactly what you're talking about. It, it was supposed to be more, it was a little supposed to be a little bit more like, you know, left. It, it was it hit on some sensitive subjects. Yeah. And once I lost those, I, I couldn't I couldn't refine my footing because I couldn't do them. And the first issue of that run is fine 
was fine. But then after that, when, when it when I really had to change it, I just couldn't find my footing with it. You know, it's only three issues, but it just it's just one of those things. You know, you don't you don't always you don't always the ball's coming across the plate. You don't always hit it, and it happened. And it happened with me with Green Arrow. So interesting thing. I, th- I think if on the if you were looking at Green Arrow and Batman from the outside, you would argue that in many ways they're similar. Obviously, both yes. extremely wealthy, both born a tragedy, not quite the same tragedy. Both used um, have no superpowers, using their wits, utility, weaponry, whatever, to you know fight crime with some level of dedication. What would you say when you're writing them? Would you really make some distinct be- for you as characters? Yeah, I'll, I, th- I think. Oliver has a has a fun side at times. <laughs> he's much. He's not as he's not obsessed. He, he he's not as locked into things. He can be pulled out of, of his of his mission. There's some room in there for for Ollie to relax a little bit. Most of the time, when you write Batman, and I'm not saying you have to write Batman this way, but you know, it's it's been sort of the it's been sort of the well, it's been sort of the template the last. I don't know, since I would say since Miller's year one and, and Dark Knight, it's been sort of the template that he's obsessed. You know, yeah. he's brooding, he's dark, and he's going, and and the mission is everything. He's Batman, he's not Bruce Wayne. You know, Green Arrow can be Oliver. There's a little bit more balance there with him. And the other thing is, is, is that when, when, you know, Black Canary... Sometimes he works best with Black Canary, not Green Arrow. And, and I think Batman, for the most part, works best when he's alone. It's 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 nice when the other when the, when the Bat family comes in and is an alternative to that. But I think I just think it goes smoother with 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 with, with Oliver. <laughs> so I mean, do you think it's is it really the imagery and peripheral that makes? Batman, one of the most popular characters in comic books, and Green Arrow, one of the hangers on of the DC industry, a DC universe. I, I think that's there. Are, there are several reasons for Batman's popularity, and I can I'm do them real quick. <laughs> to me, to me, Batman's popularity. I mean, he's classic pulp from the nineteen late nineteen thirties, of course. He's classic pulp, and. There's just something dark and mysterious in those early issues of Batman, which they later went back to with work. And the other thing that makes Batman popular is that in the 1980s, those movies came out and they were huge. And there's just a certain age group right now as, as comics, as, as the people who read comics get older, that hold on to Batman and that time period. And I, so, you know, Batman had those movies and... He's kind of never lost his foothold as the most popular character in some ways since those movies. So that you know, that's my kind of take on why Batman has been so popular. Green Arrow, he's cool, but he at the end of the you know at the end of the day, Green Arrow, you know, he I don't think he quite has those natural pulp roots, so to speak, and hmm. that, that that Batman has. It's kind of like Batman uh, origins are in. It's like it's like what rock is to the blues. That's Batman. Batman is like, like that. And then Green Arrow is like whatever blue. Oh, what's a good thing? You know, he, he doesn't come as much from. I wouldn't say pulp, but you, you look at that, and there's there's. It's more like swashbuckling mm. and stuff like that. And today's that that hasn't had the, the same lasting appeal 
that crime and those pulp stories of the early 1930s have, have, like I said, it's kind of the blues to what rock is today. And pulp is kind of, those pulp stories are kind of what Batman is today. And you look at, you know, Robin Hood and stuff like that is to what Green Arrow is. I I know I've completely digressed here, but. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 I I get get what you're saying. I just find it interesting that Green Arrow, I mean, the TV show on CW, I I guess is considered um, successful. You look at what they did with that and he's more Batman in that than he is anything else. Any other part of him, any other thing that he's written, um, uh, any other way that he's written. He, in that show, he's first and foremost in that Batman genre, if you really deconstruct it. And I don't want to say that's why that show is so popular, but it helped. Um, I even borrowed the Batman villains, you know? that show i agree with you there and, and I, I think it's kind of interesting that you know the, the, the best line about green arrow comes from avengers age of ultron with hawkeye when he's talking about everything going crazy and i'm, I'm just a guy with arrows <laughs> this doesn't make any right. sense i think myself in many ways that really is green arrow in a nutshell it's like you have batman with all the cool gadgets and the car and the bat plane and everything and at the end of the day green arrow just has these fancy arrows and it's just not as visually interesting i think yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so so you went from Green Arrow, you did Batman, and now you're doing uh, Keiju Score. How did what inspired that creation? Um, you know, I just I was reading a lot of Donald Westlake, Richard Stark novels. Same person, different name. The Parker series, and the Parker series goes into basically heist novels at some point, and they're great. They're fantastic. It, it, it's amazing how how good those books are. And I just wanted to do a contemporary version of it. And at some point, I just decided that the best way to do it was to merge it with, you know, another genre, which is, you know, the kaiju, the Godzilla, the Gamera, whatever you want to call it. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, if they tried to do this during a giant monster attack? <laughs> and my point was, my focus with kaiju was always to have it be about the characters. And I, what I mean is you're locked in on them and the monster stuff's going on in the background. So, and, and this has been used a hundred times, but it's basically, it's like a Quentin Tarantino film taking place in the corner of a Godzilla movie. So when I understood that balance, that's what made me want to write it. When I knew that it wasn't about the monsters and it was about the characters and all this other crap was going on just around them. That's crazy. Like when, when I, when I read the series, I always, so it's written in my head. I, I would have thought it was the Keiju concept with a cool plot you know combined with it but it was interesting that it's the heist first then the cage and that that's a significant difference to how you approach it it sounds like yeah and those people and the people who thought it was the other thing jumped off early on that book i mean the book has checked all the boxes when it comes to success and i can say that as against i can say that in context of i don't think any other book i've ever written has done that so in terms of success that book has, has checked off all the uh, all the boxes having said that uh, there, there was a portion of people I feel who jumped off early because they thought the book was about Kaiju and it's not, it is a heist book and it just happens to have a couple Kaiju in it. So how did you connect with Aftershock comic books to publish this? Like why, why was it Aftershock was the right home for this book? Well, Mike was my editor back when I did Batman and Harley and he actually threw me on green arrow and he wasn't my editor on it. But he, he, I think he was, I think he was group editor of that department at the time. And it was weird because, you know, it went to, they sent it to image and they really liked it. 
And Jim Valentino had said, he sent me an email saying, I'm not really sold on this. If you ever finish the first issue, send it. And, and I mean, he, he really liked it, but he, his exact words were something like, I can see how this could go wrong. And so I'm not sure, you know, and he's like, if you ever, if you ever do the, if you ever do the whole first issue, send it to us. And so I did the whole, we did the whole first issue and we sent it to him and then they rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, you know, it found its way to Mike and I just emailed Mike and I was like, Hey Mike, you want to take a look at this book? And he was like, yeah, sure. And I, I put some art in it first because his REM is so good that I knew that, that if I just put a little bit of art in the pitch, in the, in the email that Mike would probably listen to the whole pitch. So and he did. He's like, oh, that looks good. So send me those things. So, and then it went to their committee and the whole issue was done. So they knew what they were getting. And that was it. They took it. And it has become, I, again, I say this in the context of, of this is the only books ever done this. It, is, it has become a, a really big success in, in a lot of ways. So, and, and I'm glad because I don't normally have that type of comprehensive check all the boxes success. So how is writing at Aftershock different than when you were writing? I, I would say, well, Zenoscope, I, I was co-plot. They gave me like a plot. And so I was kind of co-plotting, meaning I was, I was filling in the blanks. They told me where it wanted to go. There were some things they wanted in it. And then I co-plotted it. And then I basically scripted it. That was with somebody else. And that wasn't really my, my voice, Xenoscope stuff. It wasn't what I do well. And it's what they do well. They're really, really good at it. Guy that likes Daredevil. <laughs> so so I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't in my, I wasn't in my stripes on there. So Aftershock, I think I got one note back on all of that. I do score. I remember one, one note that meant like actually wasn't like a small, small, small detail that was like, Oh, here you go over here. I'm not sure that this makes sense with this over here. I think I got only one of those editors notes, but it was, it was really hands-off. It was pretty hands-off with Batman and Harley too. I mean, my, my stuff in Green Arrow was not like that. And they were going into the new 52 and, and they were being really cautious about what they were putting out. And I understand that. So yeah, there was just less, I mean, as long as something wasn't glaring in the story, it just let me do what I wanted. They let us do what we wanted, you know, Rem and I. And I don't know if that's always the case, but but my experience with with Kaiju and and most and most of the stuff that I, I write creator owned is it's pretty smooth. So that's a good thing, I guess. And but, and I would say I think Kaiju Score was a great series. I was glad to have read it. And, and and one of the things I, I think right from the beginning of the first issue, it it caught my attention because. What what I what, what I love what I love about the the opening was that discussion of the of the mullet fish, which mm-hmm. seemed like such a like in, in it was completely in my mind in a very innocuous seeming start, and, and then later on when you find out it connects to like the Keiju, and then later on you then do Marco and the dialogue about planning you know planning for the job it has like sort of like a whiplash effect I, don't, I mean yeah. was that kind of a way to signal to your readers that this was going to be a series that defied your, what your expectations were going to be in a series like this. I think more than anything, it was just my way of saying this is a crime book. It's the type of thing that you do in a crime book is, you know, you, you focus on, you know, some element like that. It's just part of the score. It kind of organically, it kind of organically came out of it that later Marco identifies as the kaiju fish because they all look alike and he doesn't want to be a nobody. So that was kind of, that was more organic 
than anything else. It just all seemed to fit. But yeah, I mean that 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 was my going in. That was that was what that's what I was going for. Was that that feels like a crime thing? So, so is Marco a mullet fish? Like is <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like as you said earlier, the idea he feels like one. It, especially yeah. early on, there's a potential for that, and it's that desire that drives him to commit crime. It's not doesn't sound like it's necessarily the money, except more. Th- it's more that. He just wants to prove that he's not one of the others. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, you, you've hit it on the head and not to get too, not to get too into craft, but, you know, the, the external goal for Marco is get the money, get the heist. The internal goal for Marco is to not screw it up because he he's, you know, he, he's trying to get the money, but internally he's trying to not miss that detail he's trying to not be a screw-up he's trying to not be and by doing that trying not to be joe or jim or john on the street he's trying to be somebody special and he doesn't want to be a mullet fish you know <laughs> he'd rather be the guy you do in your opinion which is the stronger motivator for him oh it's the internal goal it's the internal like it's, it's really about him it's, it's about him pulling off the heist and not getting rich from the heist so you know, in most stories, you can find those two things. You can find the external goal and the internal goal, the difference between plot and story and character and all that stuff. But, you know, what drives him is him not wanting to be that guy he's always been his whole life. That guy that misses that detail, that guy who has potential but never realizes it. And I kind of feel that's the entrance or for the reader. It's the it's obviously most of us are not going to be planning a heist. But I feel that all of us can feel like him saying, I just do, don't want to be this. You know, yeah. I mean, there's got to be something about me that makes me not them. Right. It's, it's, you can, you know, you can, you can connect it to, oh, I should have finished college, but I didn't. And I know I could have, I could have been a writer. And, but I chose, you know, I was scared to be a writer. I was scared to, to not to give up my nine to five job. I wanted to do, I wanted to write this novel. But I never did because I was scared. It felt it touches on all that stuff. And it also touches on the idea that maybe somebody's had misses in their life, near misses. They, you know, there are people out there who have this one story about, oh, if I would have just bought that piece of real estate or something like that. And it all ties to that. Now, the series definitely, at the, especially at the beginning, has very much a Ocean's Eleven vibe to it as he's assembling the team. Did you do a lot of research into heist movies in preparing for this story? Yeah, I mean, I I, I read a lot of stuff. It's, what's interesting is when that started off, you know, the Parker series. If you look at the Parker series, which which was my main inspiration for this, if you look at those books, you would you would liken them more to something like Drew Baker's writing. So when I was going into this, I'd always thought, oh, this is going to be more like that. This is this is going to have those. Those types of tones. You know, Marco was a little more, not as, I don't know, not as Marco as he is. <laughs> um, so, it, but when Rem came on board, the, the art style changed how I wrote it because I was realizing that it was Ocean's Eleven and it was not Parker. It, it was just Rem's influence was too heavy not to lean in that direction and not to have fun with it. So, it's really odd. I, I went in the direction of the book. That, that would have been a totally different book. It, you know, it would have been criminal just with Kaiju rather than 
if, if, if I had gotten like some of the early artists that I wanted on it, it would have been criminal meets Kaiju. But instead, it ended up being Ocean's Eleven meets Godzilla. You know, I, th- I think it was well done. And I really liked the characters. Like, the character Palmero, I think, was a very fun character that, that you wrote. Was there any character that he was based on specifically? No, he kind of just organically came out of the story. You know, I, I would say Marco and, and Michelle, I had like very specific templates for. But I don't even remember creating Palmero. I kind of just remember he existed at some point. He was just, he, he, he was one of the, the crew. And I thought it'd be interesting for him to have that weakness that he has. So is Michelle part of Palmero's curse? Because she's kind of the, she's kind of like the bomb that kind of messes things up uh, seemingly. At the, or you would think right. potentially. I, I always wondered that. You, you could tie it all together if you want. You know, it all kind of. You could a lot of th- almost anything that goes wrong could be Palmero. You uh, <laughs> can be attributed to him at some point, but you know, he kind of redeems himself. He, 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 he works out for him a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for Michelle, when you're envisioning her character, was she in your mind, a good person doing bad things for good reasons? Or would you say she's a bad person forced to make just worse decisions? It's very interesting. She, Seems to be a good person doing bad things for a good reason. It's kind of like, oh, Walter White, right? In the beginning, Mm. you think, well, maybe Walter, Walter's doing this because he has to. Walter White, of course, being Breaking Bad. So Walter's doing these things because he has to. And by the end of the series, you find out that Walter did those things because he wanted to. <laughs> and I think we play with some of those things with Michelle well, at some the, point. One of the two characters that you did do a great job with the rapport was Michelle and Marco actually have a great rapport with one another. Was there... My favorite <laughs> scene is them just talking in issue three. It's my favorite <laughs> thing in the whole book. It, it's just... It's, it's, it's her just calling him on his... Well, yes. And him... Pushing back and just the two of them going at it. I, 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 that ended up being my favorite scene in the whole series was, was just the two of them. You know, when she, when, when she says, you ever blank, you ever think, Hey, maybe I'm not good at this. <laughs> so, but, but was there ever a temptation to build up the romance between those two characters? No, they're friends. Like I always just saw them as friends. I've seen some reviews that said, Oh, you know, there could be a romance in the future, but I never wrote it like that. It, it just basically was their friends. You know, it, it, they play off one another, and then Marrow and Pearson ended up end up playing off one of them. You know, they ended up they end up the majority of the interactions occur between those two and then those two. So, and it just it, just the way that their their personalities lined up against each other, it felt right for for those two to be over here doing this, and and, and those other two to be over there doing that. When 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 you when you were first writing the series. Did you have a a more detailed background for Marco and Michelle that you held on to when you're writing the characters? And kind of this was there any discussion of where how Michelle got to where she was in your mind? I I think as I no, I Michelle was was kind of one note and so was Marco in the beginning. And then as I wrote them, they became more nuanced, of course. And in the end, Michelle became the most interesting character because there's a lot of questions as to, like you had said, why does she do what she do? You can look at it one of two ways. 
So she ended up being the most fun character to write in it. And it, there's a lot of, you, you can interpret that maybe this person that she, maybe there's something inside of her that always could have been this person or, you know, or she has to do these things just, just because of the situation and it's open to interpretation. So I, I didn't, I, I discovered it as I wrote it. That's the best way to, I discovered it as I wrote it. And that, that including that, that, that those are those layers of Michelle. And, and let's, uh, I, I think the setting that you created with the kaiju is really fascinating. I think one of the things that more is the most fascinating aspect of the kaiju in the world you created is that the humans seem kind of have adjusted quite nicely to their existence. What is, are, are you making a philosophical philosophical point in doing in suggesting that? No, I, I, the, the, kaiju scores one of the one of the books that where there isn't super. <laughs> There's a lot of moral. I'm not trying. There's no. There's no moral underneath it all, and there's no. There's not a lot of symbolism. I mean, there's some stuff that connects story and plot in there. Like in issue four, you find out something about the kaiju that relates to the team. So there's there's some interesting parallels and some maybe some metaphor in that way. But no, I, I really the only reason that that world, I just thought that world would be interesting if kaiju's were like hurricanes. And if kaijus were like earthquakes and they weren't treated as anything other an occasional inconvenience to an occasional oh crap this time it's, it's going to be a problem, you know? Well, and, and obviously this is probably the obvious question, but any series that is as successful as kaiju score is, is there plans for a sequel? If there were, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Right now, um, I will say I, the only thing I can say is that the series did very well. It did well in terms of sales. It did very well in terms of critical reaction, and it did very well in terms of Sony's making a motion picture out of it. And it wasn't the the Sony thing was, and I, I tell people this so they understand the context of it. And the Sony thing was not a small development thing. Sony thing was out of the blue and it was a, it was, was literally a big deal. I, I, I not metaphorically a big deal. It, it was, it was metaphorically a big deal too, but it was also literally a, a rather large movie deal. And it checked off that last box. All of those boxes are checked. So that puts us in a position to have choices <laughs> about what we want to do. How's that? <laughs> so, so, so there's, there's, this potential that there's elements of the story that you're thinking about currently. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. That, that, that's, that's a good answer. I like that answer. If I were to ask you the next question, what are you working on next? Does that partially answer my previous question? I have my, it looks like my next big, well, I have a book coming out. It's running a little late it's called prison earth. It's with Winkler films. Uh, they do movies like Creed, and we developed a com. My the company I run, Twenty One Pulp, we developed a comic for them. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to get some of the some 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 stuff, and then I'll get into. It. So I I wrote that comic, and that's coming out soon. And that's you know we're really excited about that and doing it with Winkler Films and My Hero Hourly. Uh, trade should be coming out soon. That's like five years in the making to get that collected and out. And then in August is kind of next creator-owned 
big thing coming out and I can't announce that. And then there, yeah, there are two other projects that I have greenlit that are, de- are definitely coming out at some point. I'm working on all of those right now. I just can't announce any of the down the road stuff. So, well, I hope when you can, can you, can you come back on the show and discuss them? Oh, absolutely. That, that'd be absolutely fantastic, sir. I will absolutely do that. Thank you so much, Mr. Patrick. It was a great joy talking to you. I think Cage score was a great mini series. It was a lot of fun. And, and I think it was definitely unexpected how it plays out. Cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And thank you for the nice word. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic night, sir. You too. All right. Bye. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> It's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers. And, oh, my God, are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many, so many amazing people from the comic book world over at Spoilerverse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds from the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country. Or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it you know, obviously on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And even more.